Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everybody, welcome to Bilge Pumps episode 10. Uh, It's back to the regular terrible trio, so it's myself, Drac, and we have Jane from Armoured Carriers, and Dr. Clark from AC Naval History, and many other things, soon to be uh, author of a book on destroyers. <laughs> yes. When it gets published. Yes. Oh, it's going to give me grey hair in the meantime, but it's going to get published. It's going to get published. What, what's 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 causing the hassles? Uh, at the moment, um, they've got the caption that's got everything, but I think they've just they had this idea of where I was going to fit in terms of the book writing. And they found out I don't quite fit that mould. I fit a slightly different one, I think, is my is my thing. They still like the book. It's kind of interesting. That they, they, they like the book, but sort of going... Um, I, they said, not, they asked me... Well, you're either I, too academic or not, not, not academic enough. They asked me to write a book which was had academic quality, but was going to be able to be picked up by the average history enthusiast and enjoyed. Me. And I think I managed to do that. In fact, the thing is, I think I've managed to do that a bit too well in that they're going, well, we can't quite market it as an academic book or as a general, because it manages to straddle the line quite so well. I've managed to do too good a job. I haven't managed to fit into either category because it goes straight down. So that is what I think is having the fun because they're also, it makes difference towards the editing process. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the editor they've got who's to check the academic stuff is saying, you could add in this, you should add in this, 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 this to make it more academic because it could be more academic quite easily. And the person who's the general uh, general sort of editor is going, oh, no, no, you, what you need to do is you need to take out this bit and this bit because it's, it's, it's adding too much academics into it. And they're sort of going. Which one do they want? Yeah. And I'm going. Can, can you come up with another title and perhaps publish two? <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me that much grey hair. <laughs> uh, now, I like it as it is, and I'm going to keep fighting for it to be as it is, because I like the idea of a book which can be useful to both audiences. Mm. Look, it's, called, it's very simple. It's, it's called scaffolding, where you provide you know, enough information to lift someone out of one arena into another but you don't fill in the entire brick wall with, uh, mm. you know, with the academic detail. So, you know, um, it's, I think it's something that is, that's how you entice people into looking further yeah. by providing them with that sort of taste and that sort of framework. But Hey, that's just me. Yeah. That's, that's my policy. Well, so I looked at, I wanted it to have sort of Freeman style attention to detail in terms of the technology with a Lambert style approach to dealing with the personalities and dealing with the people and bringing them out and sort of into sort of weave that story together because so much of the destroyers which I'm dealing with, especially the tribals, are about the personalities involved in them and the personalities that come through. And it's one of the problems is that honestly the personalities which come through in the battles and darings are less vivid in many ways. But that's because they don't have a World War Two scenario to live up to mm-hmm. doing. And that's what affects it. So they're sort of the personalities. I, I, 
Uh, but the trouble is also the tribal personalities are still involved in that project. You know, you have the fact that Philip Vian is conspicuously obsessed with the daring class and making sure they work and making sure everything's done properly for them. Fair enough. Anyway, uh, that's all me, and that's not today's topic. Today's <laughs> topics are rather cool. We have, well, we have three now because we've added one in to an extent. And the three are, the first one has been listener suggested, is small to medium navies that are forgotten, but in our opinions do really good stuff. Um, I have already paxied Scandinavian navies, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure my colleagues will probably be running into them and taking them over for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, two, what would we buy if we were equipping a small navy for real? And then, to, of course, in the last few weeks, the Albonians Challenge has started, which is... Of course, inspired by the Dilbert comics. In yeah. what would we equip a country with if you wanted to make it look really good, but was actually really, we were secretly a traitor and we were actually buying really bad stuff. So that's the Airborne Challenge. So the first, uh, that, that's going to be number three. Sort of number two is going to be doing it properly, and number three is going to be what we'd be doing if we were secretly a traitor. So let's start off with number one. What's the small to medium navies you really, really love that you think are doing really good jobs? Well, since since you've managed to, to steal the Scandinavian navies, <laughs> um, well, I suppose it's 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 made a little bit difficult in some ways by the fact that compared to the U.S. Navy and nowadays to a lesser extent the Chinese Navy, almost every other navy classifies as a small to medium sized navy, even if they're actually quite sure. large. I mean, even <laughs> so, you know the Japanese Navy is one of the biggest in the world, but mm. I guess we'd have to we'd have to actually consider that because the gap is just massive isn't it mm. so yeah I'm, I'm sure dr well we'll talk more about the scandinavian navies because that was one i really wanted to get into but i do have some other ones um the japanese navy actually is one that i think definitely merits a mention although although they're obviously they say relatively large they have a, quite an interesting technological development because when you look at their sort of order of battle as it stands at the moment, they follow a rather different way of doing things compared to a lot of other navies because you've got the, let's say the US Navy, obviously it just builds Arleigh Burks as if there's no, no tomorrow, but you probably could make an argument that the Flight 3 is different enough from the Flight 1 that probably should be a separate class, but whatever. Um, and the Royal Navy obviously builds... Type 23 and Type 42, now they're building Type 26 and Type 45. So the other large-ish navies seem to go with uh, consistent numbers, large classes. But then when you look at the Japanese navy, their recent series of destroyers, they only build two, three, four of any given class, and then they move on to the next one. And so that there's act, they've actually got quite the wide range of relatively modern ships that actually have quite a, 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 a wide variety of capabilities. I mean, if you look at the, the most recent set, you've got the Congo class, the Otago class and the Maya class. They're all in roughly the same weight range as far as Aegis destroyers go, but their capabilities are actually quite, quite different. And what, what, what sort of commonality do they have? Because that, surely that's an eye-wateringly expensive process. I think from the looks of it, they seem to be very, roughly iterative designs. Um, but they're, they're certainly, I mean, 
they, they seem to be packing in with a bit more displacement as they go. They pack, they're packing in more and more. Um, but how that's working for them, I'm not entirely sure. Because when you look at the number of destroyers and or frigates, because they just call them all destroyers, that they have in service, there are so many different classes. But I suppose if they're building them all iteratively and with their own, mostly their own technology, it's probably not too much of a fuss. But then I'm not part of the mm-hmm. Japanese Navy, so I don't know. The main, <laughs> the main thing I like about them at the moment is that um, although they've also managed to do quite a, quite a good number on conventional submarines... Um, you've also got the the Izumo class. They're honestly not an aircraft carrier, Gov. Which is now an aircraft carrier, Gov. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it was probably a bit of a giveaway when they named the second one Karga. <laughs> they they at least had the decency with the previous ones to name them after battleships, previous battleships. But when you get Karga, it's like, okay, yeah, that that now you, now it's just obvious. Giving away. Um, <laughs> It actually addresses a, a question that was raised in a, in a dry dock episode that I think is actually the one that's going up uh, the weekend of the 9th, 10th, which is what would a modern escort carrier look like? And I actually did sort of the, the, the mathematics of like, if you look at a, a Bogue Casablanca type escort carrier, what's its de- relative displacement compared to the fleet carrier of the time, the Essex? Mm-hmm. And then you apply that approximate metric to the big fleet carriers, the Nimitzes and the Fords. And you come out with, and a modern escort carrier should be in the mid uh, mid to high 20,000 ton region. And it's like, what what is the Azumo class? It's a 27,000 ton dedicated aircraft carrier. I mean, you've got things like the Canberras and the Juan Carlos, which are in the same weight Mm -hmm. range, but they're not dedicated air operations vessels. So it's kind of, if you want to know what a modern escort carrier looks like, the Japanese have quite handily built one. <laughs> and, you know, I guess they're a nation that really needs it because mm. they're an island nation and they are totally dependent on their shipping lanes. Yeah. And we, so, weirdly enough, when you look at, the, um, at its capabilities now that they're re-rating them to actual proper okay, aircraft carriers, they're saying approximately one squadron of F-35Bs and a scattering of helicopters. That's sort of your, your minimum viable, useful unit as far as aircraft carriers go. Mm. And then you look at the the old escort carriers and what was their equipment. Pretty much again, the minimum viable number of of, 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 of uh, combat aircraft. So, although I'm not, I don't necessarily think there's going to be a massive proliferation of them immediately. It is a very useful baseline should the need to build vast numbers of. If modern escort carriers actually come about. Yep. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to... Uh, I think I, I have to say I do enjoy the Japanese Navy at the moment. And, uh, oh, sorry, apologise to listeners if I do disappear at any point because um, we currently have a someone in the house at the moment who's a very nice handyman has turned up to put in some handrails for my mum for to help her get in and out bath and get around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, just to make things easier, because she normally walks with the aid of a stick at least, or one, sometimes two sticks. So having some hat, more handrails put in the house has been rather useful. Mm-hmm. And they literally phoned up last night and said, can we come tomorrow morning? And it was a case of, yes, let them come. So if I disappear, that's what I'm off dealing mm-hmm. with, because I'm the only one allowed to say hello to them, basically. Well, um, we'll cover for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. You two, are br- that's the good thing about this uh, this podcast, is that if one of us has to disappear, the other two can always mm-hmm. cover. Um I'm going to quickly jump in because I love 
the Japanese flavor. I think they do some really cool stuff and I'm really quite impressed with them. But I do think they are a bit obsessed with doing what I call mini Americana in terms mm-hmm. of their Aegis destroyers and these sort of things. They do seem to be building quite a lot. I like to, sort of the navies which I really draw from, which I really like to look at and start thinking, oh, that's interesting. Probably starts off with the Danish Navy because I love but the stamps. Before, before we go further, though, I, I just want to take it a task for just a little bit on your critique there in Japan. Yes. If, if a nation needs Aegis, what nation would need it the most? Probably Japan. And I agree with that. They've got um, Russia next door, they've got North Korea next door, and they've got China next door, Taiwan next door, all of whom... And love they've got South Korea as well, which also has Aegis next door, and those two... And they don't, get along, terri- they don't get along terribly well with South Korea either. So yeah, they need that missile capability more than most. And, um, yeah, okay, well, they've just scrapped their Aegis ashore program because they couldn't see any way of stopping the booster rockets from falling on their cities or at least that's the given excuse so so now they're looking at getting more destroyers to plug that gap Mm. so you know i i I can't i'm afraid that i think that's a little bit of an unfair criticism um it's also a bit unfair when it comes to their carriers because let's face it as i was saying before you know they are an analog of great britain they're an island nation, totally dependent on their um, supply lines. Shipping yes, and so they're building a sensible number of carriers. I, mm-hmm. I, I think actually myself, it's going to sound strange. If you're building a carrier-sized vessel, I do agree the Queen Elizabeth size, especially the automa- automation, is the best, or an LHD of equivalent, its equivalent size. Um, and this is why I'm always putting forward the case for Britain that honestly we should go with the sort of the original mooted plan, which was considered, which was going to be two strike carriers and three LHDs to replace Ocean, Albion, and Bulwark, and probably Illustrious as well. So and Argus, so that you'd end up with replacing basically. Well, you've got the two LPDs, the four the four flight decks including ocean and argos so you were planning on replacing as it was seven ships with five which were all going to be individually slightly more capable and uh, that would give you operation but we haven't done that instead we're lurching along and i i i I see britain making some very big mistakes which is why i'm interested in looking at small navies in part but also (laughs) i have to i i I, so i understand what the uh, the japanese are doing and i i do accept it but i also think that you see, the trouble is, when I'm looking at some of their designs, I, I sit there and think, the Japanese can design beautiful ships. They do design beautiful ships. And those, some of them, I can understand why they have the capabilities they have. I can understand what they do, but it just, it's not as beautiful. It's not as good as it could be. It's not as beautiful as it could look. And oh. I go and look at things like the, well, I'm going to bring up my favourite navy now, the Ivor Hilt class, which I think are very lovely looking ships. The Absalon class, which are very, very nice and very, even before their time, really, they've got beautiful sweeping lines. I'm really looking forward to see what they replace the Thetis class with. And the Nudrums Musen class are possibly some of the best patrol vessels I can think of because of their capabilities and the way they can be swept around. I was just going to ask you to give us a quick rundown on each of those classes, what they are and what their capabilities are. 
So the Ivor Hilt class is an air defense class, air defense frigate, and they are they displace about six thousand six thousand seven hundred tons, and they are actually they are the basis for the Type Thirty One. They're what the RN are using as a basis for its new its new global patrol frigate, basically. The Abson class are a theoretically a frigate, but they're also a close combat support ship. And that means they can carry troops aboard. They can carry all sorts of things and command facilities. They have two of those and they have three of the Iverhult class. So their idea is that any task group they should produce would have um, probably one of the Fetus class, which they are older three and a half thousand ton frigates, sort of roughly analogous to a Type 23 in some respects. They probably have a couple of one of those with them, one of the Iverhult and an Absalom class, and that would be their task group. All those ships are fairly good fighting ships on their own, but as a group, they work well. They're all enabled by the Stanflex system, which is the way the Danish have managed to make all these things viable for them. Because by building Stanflex modules and by having all the ships be interchangeable in terms of these modules, that enable, has enabled them to spread the cost out so they can get far more powerful, far more ships that they for their money than they otherwise probably could if they're building them any other the more traditional route now i know there are limitations with this and that is why i wouldn't recommend that you know all the big navies change all their things out for stanflex but i would say some of the smaller navies could definitely do some stuff with changing it with you know using stanflex modules on the smaller frigates and on you know it's one of the things i uh, one of the things i think is most problematic with the Type 31 is that we are building this design and we haven't gone, right then, what would make all our patrol vessels and most of the uh, systems work well? Oh, if we included Stanflex in the design and just bought it off the Danish, because then it would allow us to swap and change and easy upgrade, because while it's doing the presence mission, we want more cranes with boats on, because then it can do more anti-piracy and more these sort of options. But what we want, what we really like is when it's war all time, we'd like to be able to take those cranes out and put in extra air defense missiles or another 127 millimeter gun or something. I thought, is, aren't uh, those um, frigates supposed to have modularity there in the middle for that sort of purpose? Whether yeah. you can swap, you can swap in um, ribs or you can swap in drone modules or you can swap in, um, you know, RV uh, submersibles. Oh, they do. So I just don't is, feel they take the modularity similar... far enough. But, but then again, I suppose no one's actually built those modules yet, so it might end up being an LHD. Yeah. That, that's the thing. They, no one's built... Uh, they, those modules are all sort of being designed and being developed, and they haven't yet really got into them yet. It is... It, well, uh, to be quite fair, at the moment it remains the, the one example of actually getting a modular system for warships right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Danish. Yes. yes. So yeah, that, they've definitely got that on the on on their plate. I mean, one, one of the other navies, again, as we were saying, not a small navy by any any stretch of the imagination, but still, when we've got China and the USA in the in the mm. game, they still appear, relatively speaking, small. Um, the South Korean navy. Um, Close the door. So yeah, the South Korean Navy um, mainly I'll pick pick on one particular vessel they've got, which is their latest class of destroyers, uh, sometimes called KDX three, sometimes called I believe it's Sejong the Great, but I probably yes. got that probably wrong. Um, no, I think it is Sejong the Great. But the those are 
on, on as we were saying, like with the Japanese, they've gone with kind of Aegis Dash, Aegis Light with their destroyers, and then Sejong the Great is kind of like, ah, Aegis, you say? Yes, we shall do this, except we shall do this even better. <laughs> because the Sejong the Great is, is like, oh, yes, you have 96 cells in your books. We shall have 128 cells, plus a C-RAM launcher, plus triple torpedo launchers, plus a couple of helicopters, plus another 16 anti-shipping missiles, plus a five-inch gun, plus some CIWS, and we're going to have Phalanx and Goalkeeper at one point. I think they ended up going with Goalkeeper and Ram rather than Phalanx, but it's like the, um, the amount of firepower they packed into these things, they're basically uh, much as I hate to much closer time, to a cruiser, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're basically pocket cruisers. I mean, to, to be fair, they displace about the same as a Treaty-era <laughs> cruiser, heavy cruiser, but yeah, that's a ridiculous amount of firepower to have on a ship. And interesting that, of course, South Korea is the one which is actually at war, if you think mm. about it, because they've only had a ceasefire with North Korea. Yes. So they're the ones who are building this ship in this circumstance while technically under the war mindset. Mm. And it shows you what the difference is to an extent between the war mindset and the peacetime mindset that's pervading quite a lot of other construction. Because that ship literally is crammed with everything. It's like mm. a wartime... You know, if you think about it, if you're looking at the closest anomalous I would put it, is a wartime town-class cruiser or a wartime battle-class destroyer, which is basically every... There is a square inch of deck space. We shall put a 40 millimeter on that now! <laughs> what do you mean there's enough space that someone can actually stand without attending a gun? Give them a 20 millimeter Here! You can hold it! <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of adding up. I don't know exactly how many missiles you get in a ram launcher. I think it's 16. Yeah. If you if you do, then that means they've got 160 individual missiles on that thing. Um, and they've built more than one of them as well. I mean, it, you'd think with that many missiles, you probably wouldn't need more than one to deal with the North Korean Navy, but never mind. Um, well, you need one for both sides of the uh, both sides of the coast. This is coast. true. Yeah, I mean, so it's, that's at least it's, two, and to guarantee them, you need two more, so that's four. It, it, it's just a good example of, yeah, just how much you can actually do with these things uh, at, at that kind of size level. And the, the only other, the, the other navy I was going to bring up as an honourable mention was, again, not a small navy, but relatively speaking, be the Indian Navy. Much as they have, should we say, some issues with things like completing stuff on time or at all. Who um, does A standout project. Um, I think actually has to be their current carrier, Victor Medici, uh, mainly on the basis that whilst it does have that kind of end of life midway class, we have made it with as many possible vertices as possible <laughs> appearance uh, rather than smoothing it out. When you look at what the ship was originally, uh, one of the Russian, mm. I think it was a Kiev class. Um, where you had all the missile launchers and guns on the, on the fore deck, and just this the one angled flight deck for helicopter yeah. operations, yeah. and you look at what they've actually turned it into, which is a half decent medium carrier. That's an amazing technological achievement, and it actually it's looks pretty good of, as well. It would have taken a lot of effort and a lot of expense mm. to do that, though. It's, it's what, yeah. what, at what point? At what point does a conversion become not worth it? And that's that ship is one of those ones where I think has that crossed that point. Yeah, mm. I mean, yeah, you can definitely make that argument. Um, it's just I think looking at it, 
it, it seems almost antithetical to a lot of the um, somewhat hilarious problems the Indian Navy has in that it didn't actually take them too long to do the conversion. True. And cost wise, it's not massively expensive. Mm. And so you, you somehow managed to get something that's reasonably priced, done reasonably quickly, looks pretty good. And as I say, more as just a an engineering achievement of turning a Kiev class into something that vaguely resembles a viable carrier it, it is hugely impressive. And it's yeah. especially so because they, they somehow managed to do it with the legendary procurement issues that the Indian Navy has. Um, not the, the Raphael for why not though? That's the question. Um, who knows? Uh, <laughs> the, see, the, the Rafael is at the other end of the spectrum of uh, of Indian procurement. <laughs> uh, it's an example of how not to do it. I mean, fair enough. There's not too many random Kiev class semi carriers wandering around to convert. But it's... are there any Kievs left anyway? I don't think there are. Um, I don't know actually. There's probably something rotting away in some northern port somewhere. Um, they sold a couple of them to China. Yeah, okay, so there's four four of them. One one has become Vikramaditya, one was broken up, and uh yeah, the other two are in China as theme parks or hotels. <laughs> so like the end. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um it, as I say, it's, it's it's not necessarily a case of this is a good example of what everyone else should be doing, because there aren't that many ships that are probably big enough out there that are worth converting. But as a technological feat it shows what you can again what you can do i guess it's also a good learning exercise for mm. building carriers because okay they didn't have to solve every problem at once um but they were able to put things together in a practical way and see what worked and see what didn't um and you know that's a, a big step forward for their next project i suppose which is their own homegrown mm. from which the is Vikrant, which is fitting out right now and i have to say i mm. love the ins Vikrant mainly for one reason her her motto: I defeat those who fight against me. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's a cool motto. I can see, that. honestly, I can see that on a travel class destroyer quite happily. That motto: I defeat those who fight against me. I, I, Just don't frankly, fight. I, I don't see it as a very good motto at all because isn't that expected? <laughs> <laughs> One would hope. One would hope. Yeah, it is but, a nice you know. statement of intent. <laughs> yes. So I, I guess I guess one thing we, we, that we're sort of coming up against here is, mm. yeah, the definitions. Is a medium navy a navy that has the capacity to build its own ships, as in design and build? Um, because you know you, you, the Dutch designed and built their own ship. Japan yeah. designed and built their own ship. South Korea designed and built their own ship. India, mm, yeah, okay, it's 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 in there. Um, I guess, you know, that is a, a step change. That's a major change, a major difference, isn't it, between um, a country such as Australia. You know, we can, we can assemble them here, but we don't have the capacity to, to design um, anything above a, a patrol boat or well, I, I don't know exactly to what extent um, Austin was involved in the designing of the um, Pacific LCS. Um, it was, you know, it's, it's obviously its whole its whole shape, I suppose, but um, you know, that's th there seems to be a major difference between those navies. Um, so, yeah, I guess after you've gone from being a country that can build its own ships, I suppose I should also say Italy does that. 
and so does Spain. Um, but that, you know, beneath that, it, uh, I guess the defining what defines a navy that can't design and build its own ships is a the ability to police its exclusive economic zone. So you patrol vessels, you know, um, showing the flag. And then B, it would have to be the ability to interoperate with another navy. Yeah, which is probably what they're going to depend upon for quite a lot so, of So, otherwise, is there any point having a bigger fleet in that regard? You know, a country like Australia, if we can't interoperate with another navy of decent proportions, a country like Singapore that can't interoperate with other navies of you know similar mindset, um, is there any point them going to anything bigger than a corvette? Singapore do design and build quite all their own ships. Do they? Okay. I, I'm not, not aware. I, I know their they, ships are they, quite Let's put it this way. They are, small sh- they are small fleet in sort of in their size, but not small fleet in their mindset. That's the joy of the Singaporean Navy, mm-hmm. um, I, I, which is why they made such a good example of a potential user of unmanned surface vessels. Because, honestly, if anyone's going to be an early adopter, it would be the nation which is tech-rich, has quite a firm idea of what its naval position is in the world and its security mm. uh, but is people poor in terms of it's got a declining population and for them the unmanned surface vessel is something which they are see. yeah uh, see I'd, I'd be I'd be almost tempted with a medium sized navy to I'd, I'd actually be more tempted to look at what are their capabilities rather than rather than what are their whether or not they can build everything themselves. Um, so, uh, what would be the best? I would say my, my personal definition of a medium-sized navy would be if that navy sails the, let's say, the bulk of its forces. Let's say it sails two-thirds of its surface forces out. Can they meaningfully defend themselves against a peer-sized or slightly greater than peer-sized threat? And the reason I say that is because when you look at something like, say, the German Navy, so Germany still builds pretty much all of its own ships. Um, And surface combatant wise, they're roughly on a par with something like, say, the Australian Navy, which, as we said, they they don't necessarily build all of their own ships. But the Australian... We build, but we don't design. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah, so the... Yeah, and the the Germans design all all of their own. But when you look at the Royal Australian Navy, the Royal Australian Navy has uh, an amphibious uh, warfare vessel. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it Schulz? Schulz, yeah. Yeah, Schulz, that's right. And it's it's a bay class. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Logged off by you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've obviously got Canberra and Adelaide, which are... You've got a good buy on that one. They are good (laughs) ships, the bay class. And Mm. it's really cheap. It, she really, she really proved were, herself during the fires. She yeah. really proved herself during the fires. You know, uh, it, it really annoyed me. They place. sold her. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, so you've got you've got the you've got Chul, and then you've got the Adelaide and Canberra, which are obviously kind of part amphibious assault warfare, part other things um, mm. with their flight decks. So the Royal Australian Navy is actually more capable than the German Navy if you were to put them put them into a the middle of the Pacific Ocean and and try and work out who's got the 
the most firepower. Yeah. And what, then, what happens if you put the Australian Navy in the Black Sea, not the Black Sea, in the um, North Sea? And yeah, the North Sea and the Adriatic, the Adriatic, and you know the, the area of operations for the for the well, German. If, if, if you give everyone, a, if you give people a home field advantage, that's a different, it's a different matter. But I mean, the the thing is, it's if you look at the put ships, them both in, in the South Atlantic, then neither yeah. has a home field advantage. And I yeah. still put my money on the Australians, to be honest. Yeah, because there's the thing: the Australian Navy, on average, their their surface combatants are on average slightly heavier, slightly more capable. They've got these upper end amphibious stash not quite aircraft carrier things um, which have a load of attack helicopters on them yeah exactly but as but if if we go by the definition of medium navy as a ship that is a navy that designs its own vessels mm. the german navy is a medium-sized navy the australian navy isn't but the australian navy all other things being equal could probably beat the german navy in a stand-up fight um and also and i think this is this is where the, the i think i think the dividing line is is can, can it meaningfully defend itself against a peer opponent? The German Navy has a number of capable air, um, capable vessels, um, but they only have three air defence units, dedicated air defence units, the Saxons, and they're not the world's biggest ships. They're just under 6,000 tonnes. Uh, they've got the Baden-Württembergs, which are larger, but they're general purpose. They're not dedicated AA defence vessels. So, Are you suggesting that a fully worked up Queen Elizabeth class carrier battle group could wipe them out? Quite probably. Um, and and, and this, I think this is the thing. I, w- I would hesitate to classify the German Navy as a medium-sized Navy because it doesn't have that upper-end firepower and it probably couldn't defend itself against... Well, I mean, yeah, if you put the German Navy up against the Japanese Navy, the Royal Navy, the Korean Navy... Um, the Indian Navy potentially, the Dutch Navy, possibly even the Dutch Navy, um, possibly even the Danish Navy. To be honest, De- thinking and, about and, yeah, and the French Navy, they wouldn't be able. They just don't have the defensive capability to, to survive, let alone win. So I would actually put the German Navy as a small navy. It's the upper end of a small navy because they still do have fairly large frigates for various purposes. But it still is a smaller navy, whereas the Australian and their navy, new design is, frankly, as we've said, Cylon. Yes. Um. <laughs> so the, the the Australian navy I would put as a medium size, German I'd put as small, even though the Germans design their own ships and the Australians don't. Um, yeah, and then and then you get down into sort of the lower echelons of things like the Saudi Arabian navy, where they they just buy things off the shelf and. They use them until they break and then buy something new. Well, I, yeah, they, they probably I, have the I'm ability gonna, to defend I'm, themselves from an especially angry Cessna with a bazooka launcher hanging out the side, but I wouldn't <laughs> really count on much more. <laughs> so, look, I mean, I, I, I have to do this because you know it's one of the primary argument of my uh, website for the armored carriers is building your ships for the, you know, the the the, the, the locations they're going to be used in. And in the Royal oh, Navy's case, and, building it because it's a practical approach to what are we going? We're going to be using it in the Mediterranean, where you need armor yes. because to survive. We're going to be using it in the Pacific because we can't replace we can't replace it, we can't repair it that easily. So we need it to be slightly more survivable, so it's easier for us to fix and maintain at that distance, which always so works you, out quite well. So you look at Germany, and okay, its primary area of operations is the Baltic and the North Sea. So okay, the Baltic. I imagine, you know, isn't exactly open, you know, easily traversable, you know, easy to manoeuvre seaway. No. 
Um, and frankly, in the nicest way, it always surprises me their approach to air defence in that particular region because mm-hmm. they're basically dependent upon friendly air forces providing mm. the protection. Which, which and, are there, which are right there. Let's face it, it's... You know, they are right there, is, but... Is, is, is smaller than the Mediterranean even. So, um, yeah, you, you would expect or you would hope that... Uh, I, these these things will always end up like Singapore, I imagine, that the yeah. fighters will be needed, needed elsewhere. But I suppose it's a reasonable assumption that you have some sort of cover. Well, what, what's, what, what about Sweden then? What's, what's Sweden's approach in comparison to Germany? Sweden's and Norway, approach. Norway's even. Um, well, you know, Norway, Norway's, I have to say, I always find slightly more interesting because they, in terms of sense, they, um, they have built, of course, they built some sort of Spanish um, or, uh, origin designs, the Nansen class, and of course, one of them was um, lost. Got um, a fight with a civilian ship, didn't win. Yeah, no, uh, it, it didn't win. Um, the Norwegians mainly have gone for some. Uh, uh, their thing, their submarine force, their Ulla submarines are really, really capable, and they have got the Skold class corvettes, which are those fast missile boats. Mm. And so they're sort of they, they've got kind of interesting thing. The Norwegians have got these frigates, which are basically, I would say, for the oceanic part of their coast and for trying to give them something that can build into presence. a NATO a NATO force and yeah. presence. But really, I would say their fighting their combat power are the Skold class corvettes and their submarines. That's what's really see, going to cause trouble fighting. The interesting thing is, is that I would. I would have thought the same for Germany, um, that their fighting force would have been its submarines and that its uh, surface vessels would have been primarily used more for policing slash humanitarian uh, slash presence and combined force use. So, um, you know, as what I was saying earlier about the definition of a a medium or small navy is is its ability to to fit in with um, its uh, allies and... Yeah, the Australian Navy, the main reason why it went, well, not the main reason, but a significant reason for why it went for its LHDs and we bought the Bay class was so that we could assist our regional neighbours uh, with cyclones. You know, it's mm. every couple of years, poor old Vanuatu um, needs needs a hand or, um, you know, because they get hammered by some horrible storm. Um, and then you have, you know, Rabol with terrible volcanic eruptions and and or um hurricane uh, not hurricane uh, earthquakes and uh, you know there was a of course a tsunami event in um indonesia where we sent our previous um uh hodgepodge um attempts at uh, converting lhds mm. but uh, so you know in that in that regard germany it designs and builds a fairly diverse fleet of submarines yeah, which is well, pretty much suited for the Baltic. Yeah, this is the thing. It's when you look at when you ask about the Swedish Navy, the Swedish Navy has almost as many submarines as the German Navy, but they have basically don't have any major surface combatants. They go entirely yeah. with corvettes, mines, and minesweepers and patrol boats because they recognise that those kind of small, fast vessels are pretty much what you need to fight in the Baltic. The mm-hmm. the German Navy is weirdly enough in in this very strange situation where as you say it's like the for a lot of their time the majority of their pro- projected combat environment has been a very close not quite inshore but almost environment 
where there's going to be a massive air threat. And they've gone with this kind of halfway house where they've got ships that are large enough to be fairly nice, juicy targets, but are not quite large enough to actually properly look after themselves. Um, whereas the, the Swedes and the Norwegians have generally gone with, okay, well, we're going to build something that's really small, really difficult to target, uh, things like the Visby-class corvettes and stuff. And if you do happen to take them out, then, well, we yes, we've lost a few dozen men, and that's not good, but we've only lost a few dozen men. Whereas you blow up a, a Saxon class, and you're talking about several hundred. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I mean, okay, fair enough, they cancelled some of the systems on the Visbys, but a fully kitted out Visby's probably got about as good a chance of defending itself against an incoming anti-surface missile as most of the German ships do. <laughs> and it's 800 tons and not 6,000. What I find always interesting is I look at these navies as the Finnish Navy. They're the ones I look at because they're doing currently, um, what's it, Project 2020, Squadron 2020, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I'll mangle it. The, well, I will have to try and pronounce it. The Ponha, uh, the Po Ya Ma class Corvette. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, that's P O H J A N M A A. Um, class corvette so if i mangled it horribly i do apologize please finish people do not come kill me <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they're building these corvettes and they're going to be up 3900 tons but what i find interesting is they still don't have submarines and if i if any navy you'd think would need a submarine service it would be the finish because they're literally their entire defensive depth is a little bit of water Mm. not much and it ain't much to provide a, it, it, even if you're building those corvettes they're not going they've had missile boats traditionally before those four corvettes are replacing i think the rumor class missile cor uh, the missile boats and you know you sit there and go well yeah i can understand why you're placing them and i i, I agree but i'm also sitting there thinking you've got mine layers you've got minesweepers you've got all these things i think you probably are going to need a submarine. I think that might be a good idea to have a submarine. I think the mm. only, I think probably the main reason they're 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 not going with subs is because the Finnish coastline, which historically has been their their defensive area, is so so shallow. Mm. Most of the territorial waters are that. That's why with their even their coastal defence ships had hilariously. Um, shallow drafts because it's got so many islands so many reefs and shoals and everything i have a feeling a submarine would probably have to stay on the surface the majority of the time until it got out into the baltic proper purely because there wasn't enough depth for them to, to actually dive into yeah I can, <clears throat> I, I can accept that it's just it seems to me it's that the thing i'm looking at i'm looking at uh, thinking okay yes you're building a coastal fleet and you've got all these things you see, the issue is, and this is where it comes back to unmanned vessels. I think at the moment, probably, maybe the fact is the manned submarines have just got too big for those waters. And it would be interesting to see if what the Finnish do once unmanned submarines become practical. Hmm. Because that would be a pretty good system for that sort of shallow-sized water. Because once you can take the squidgy organic bit out of a submarine... You can shrink that submarine down quite a lot in size. Mm, there's not a lot. There's not a lot outside of people on a submarine that actually needs to be um, in the air as opposed to just in the water. Yeah. 
Right, well, Squidgy organic bits do cause trouble. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. Particularly, particularly the bit between their ears. <laughs> yeah, all that's um, fun. <laughs> what about Spain and Italy? Well, Italy is an odd one. They, 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 they're a they're often an unsung navy because they actually have two aircraft carriers. I mean, okay, mm. fair enough, one of them's not up to all that much, but... Um, Look, my favourite part of the Italian navy is their little LHDs. Mm. They have these cute little LHDs. Um, they have proper-sized ones, but they also have these sort of baby ones, which they call our, which they sell for disaster relief and these sort of things, but actually, I think, are a really, really good idea. Um... Let's see. You've got the yeah the San Giorgio class mm-hmm. amphibious warfare LH landing platform. Well, they're technical landing platform docks, but you know they've got a f- flight deck the whole way along from memory. Yes, they have. And so they're little, uh, in to my mind they're little LHDs because you can take off helicopters from them and all these sort of things. And they're eight thousand tons. They're due to be replaced by a class of new, three more LPDs, which will probably be LHDs again. Just call them LHDs. Why? Anyway, uh, so they're building, uh, you know, and you sit there and go look at them, and they go, they're just pretty cool little ships, and they're very capable. And they technically, they they had a fourth, which is being sold to the Algerian Navy, which is an improved one, which was a very cool little piece of equipment. Which is, if you look at the Algerian Navy one, you can see the full LHD capability does come through. And. Honestly, I'm surprised more nations haven't gone to the Italians and gone, okay, so this would give us the ability to land about a battalion self-supported. Ooh, it can take all the heavy equipment because it's got all the landing craft. It can accommodate free landing craft mechanized, free landing craft personnel. Ooh, it can, it, it can launch several helicopters at the same time and all these sort of things. Ooh. You know, the reason it's probably not called that, you know, it only carries up sort of eight helicopters usually. But, you know, let's be honest, eight helicopters and that lot is a fairly nice thing. And you can land a force of 400 to carry 440 soldiers. For many nations, that would be an excellent piece of kit for 8000 tons. But how would you use it? I can see it being a brilliant um, disaster relief um, a brilliant policing vessel. Mm. I don't really see it in a anything you know approaching a peer sort of conflict because you would need to protect them. Um, mm. I, well, it's fitted with Asta fifteen and Otto mm. and a seventy six millimeter, so I think it's fairly and plus a couple of twenty five millimeters yeah. as well. So it's not it's fairly quite self defended. They, so they have a couple of nice air defence frigates as well. Um, but to, to be honest, I think with the the Italian Navy, I think they've actually, of of the various NATO navies, they've actually probably embraced the idea of being part of a larger alliance if they ever need to go into an offensive war situation. Probably one of the most of the various European countries, because as you say, it's like in and of themselves, it would be questionable of sending sending them with just the Italian Navy against kind of peer level opponent, but if we're then talking about a NATO-led um, commitment, then all of a sudden, if once you each, factor each of those things become very attractive, yes. Yeah, when you, yeah. when you when you factor in the um, 
the, the more capable air defence ships that, say, the French Navy and the Royal Navy have, Plus, or if it's NATO, the Americans yeah. as well, then these are actually very useful. To, you'd be able to combine the LPDs into a, a fairly decent and worthwhile force, yeah. land force. Yeah, because and then, yeah, and then we have that... Yeah, it's like what we were discussing with Michael Clapp about distributed, um, mm. yeah. uh, distributed landing forces. Like you bring those three in, that's actually a very useful addition. They carry a relatively useful warload, and there's three of them. Which, yeah, it's like if Albion and Bulwark are running, if the weird hybrid whatever the heck it is, Jean d'Arc that the French have got come comes along, and various other LPDs, you've got you've got your your nice mix of large and small. And, and and as uh, Dr. Clark pointed out, they're actually they're not too bad at the the old, well, the old uh, self-defense part. <laughs> In fact, I think they're probably actually slightly better at self-defense than some of the larger ones. And that's the thing, actually. It's, it's going to sound strange, but if I was talking about a big force and I was doing my main landing and I was doing covering landings along the coast, that I could deploy with, uh, let's say, a single destroyer frigate as escort. It's got some firepower itself, so it's not completely, you know, dependent, and they can mutually support each other. And it's got enough; it can land enough troops to do. Okay, I've got my brigade landing over here, but I've got I had two couple of companies going in there, a couple of companies going on there. Where am I landing? What am I doing? And I've put in blocking forces to stop you attacking my main force. You know that, that I see that. In nicest yeah. way, when the British government oh, yeah. talking about literal strike ship and this sort of concept, I'm going, well, there you go. There's one off the shelf, almost. Mm. If you really yeah. want a literal strike ship, there is your proof of concept sitting there. You would have to modify that probably a little bit for the British need. It would probably go up to about 12,000 tonnes, be slightly bigger and have slightly more weaponry on it. But that is what you're talking about when you're talking about a literal strike ship. And this all comes around to what I call the, the HMS warrior principle. Um, I personally, I think one of the single biggest mistakes that a Navy that either is the current hegemon or wants to be the current hegemon could possibly make is to be the Navy that is driving all the technological development, because it means you're the one who has to bear the costs of the mistakes. You're the one who's going to end up developing the first generation of some new system and then everyone else builds a better second generation and because you are the big navy you end up having to build vast amounts of these things so the costs just go through the roof whereas and and almost every navy that's had domination at some point has made that mistake at some point along the line whereas I, i much prefer the warrior principle which is where the the, if, when you look at the various technologies, armor plating, iron hulls, um, bigger, nastier guns, uh, steam engines, etc. The British experimented with them, but they didn't commit fully to any given one of them. Um, and they let everyone else experiment with them. And lots of different nations, because they're, especially the small navies, because they're driven to find solutions that don't involve spending vast amounts of money or building absolutely colossal capital ships end up coming up with these innovative ways of doing things. And then when it was finally needed, when the French came up with Gloire, it meant that there was this huge raft of knowledge, um, both internally and externally, that the Royal Navy could call upon and go, right, let's combine all the best bits of our own knowledge and what everyone else has built and come up with Warrior. 
which was then very, very quick to come into service. And when you put it up next to Gloire, it's it's blatantly obvious who's got the better vessel. It's not kind of, oh, well, maybe there's some advantages here or there or whatever. And I think that kind of principle should be the guiding principle for larger, should we say, navies generally, in that there are certain benefits to saying our, our, our new thing is, is the biggest and the best, but how is that happening? I, you, I think you, they really it should be a case of, yeah, if we're designing things for our own purposes, but rather than think we know best, let's look at what the solutions that everybody else has come up with because there are going to be very good solutions out there come up by these smaller navies who are facing aspects of the challenges that you're facing. And then you can take that, iterate on it, and get a, a you get a better result, and B, it's going to be a lot cheaper and a lot more reliable. So, as, as we were just saying, like take take this concept that the, the Italians have got with their mini, mini landing ships and go, okay, excellent idea, nice balance of protection and capability, expand slightly, now we have the ideal ship. That's going to that's a much much more sensible approach to me than going. Ah, oh, yes, we will design everything from scratch, and then yeah. make all the mistakes that everyone else has made already. <laughs> they can carry thirty medium tanks or thirty six tracked armored vehicles. They have a crew which is about one hundred and eighty personnel. So that's the size of a Type twenty three frigate at the moment. Um, the Italian Navy ones have a 76 millimeter and two 80 millimeter, 76, mm. 82, and 225, 80. Plus, they can be fitted for missiles and all sorts of things. They have a range of 8,600 nautical miles at 16 knots. Mm. Uh, you know, th- you know, these things are fairly good. Yeah, and uh, it kind of traces back through all the other stuff that we've been talking about. Because if you were if you if you wanted to make build a, build yourself a fleet of of very capable small corvettes, you could do a hell of a lot worse than go, look at the Visbees and go, okay, we'll just add the systems that the Swedes didn't end up putting in. We now have a really really capable small corvette. Um, anyone who wants a, a decent air defence destroyer, I would strongly recommend they look at the if they can afford it, look at something like the Sejong the Great, and either basically clone it or that's not something similar that, that's a cruiser come on yeah, yeah okay well that's not a cruiser that's armageddon in a, in a, <laughs> a metal box but come on it's going to make it a superb superb either flagship or or, or lead set lead section of ships and this is the thing it's like you, you rather rather than waste time trying to reinvent the wheel look at all these separate little bits like look mm. at what the japanese have done with their independent propulsion submarines if you want to build a conventional submarine fleet and so on and so forth work out which bit which bits can you just go right i'll have this and sort of copy paste and which bits you can go well i'll slightly modify this i, I guess we're well and truly into the second subject already but mm. i guess which are the um the the best buys from these middle navies well, if I was a small navy looking to start some amphibious capability, the San Giorgio class, especially now the Italians are planning to get rid of them, would be a great sort of place to start to actually start building my capability from. Because it's capable of doing disaster relief, it's at the sweet spot of disaster relief size, it's self-supported, and if I'm a small nation, I'm not going to have that many escorts. So it, it'd, it'd be easier to run than a Mistral. Yes, mm. a lot easier to run than a Mistral. And it's going to be more... 
it, it's going to slot in quite practically to other larger forces. If I want to be telling a, na a nation, let's say, I am, let's say I'm South Africa and I've decided to buy a couple of these and I am trying to help out the uh, NATO and all the other forces with the issues with piracy off the coast of Somalia because it flares up again. Deploy one of those off the coast of Somalia. You have a really flexible asset. You have helicopters, far, lots of fast boat capability, and it can it can also have space to store the prisoners if and it takes you can, them. You can deploy troops to recapture you know, yeah. vessels. Yeah. And suddenly you go from being, a, yes, you're a small nation, but suddenly you're deploying something which is probably one of the most critical assets. And let's be honest, America, Britain and the larger nations can't afford to justify deploying an equivalent asset because their assets are just that much bigger and they have to use them for the issues they've got mm. dealing with the Russians, the Chinese and counterbalancing them because... I know we're not at war, so people, please don't jump in on the podcast going, we're not at war, but in the nicest way, when you're in peacetime, you balance your, your balance potential opponents out with your deployments, and you're always acting as a deterrent, which means that's your tie on what you're using your ships for. South African Navy doesn't have to worry about that, so if they had a couple of these, they could deploy one up to the coast of, in this scenario, to, Af uh, to the west coast of Africa, and to the east coast of Africa, up to Somalia, and it would be very, very appreciated by all powers and probably earn the South African Navy a lot of, um, how do I put this, kudos and South Africa a lot of uh, political brownie points. Brownie. For the, yes. Yeah, and, and I mean, after all, what is the motto of the Royal Navy? If you wish for peace, prepare for war. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's how that's how you avoid being at war is by being big enough and scary enough that people don't want to fight you. Um, they prefer, so, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of the risk fleet strategy, but it's actually practically done. It's, we're big enough, you don't want to fight us, so let's all get around the table and have a conversation. It's mm. how to stop wars. It, it's one of those converse things, because people, perverse, rather perverse things, because people who want peace, or at least claim they do, are always shouting about, dis you should disarm your armed forces. Mm. And it's sort of a case of, well, actually... Neither, that's not necessarily the quite craze. You should actually have enough armed forces to justify everyone going around the table. The trouble is, you have to make sure that's balanced. Those forces aren't so big they become in themselves. Why do we have them if we're not going to use them? Mm. That, 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 that's the problem. It's getting the balance right so they're big enough. Everyone wants to meet around the diplomatic around the diplomatic table and have a chat. Not so big that that feeding them victories becomes essential to keeping them uh, keeping them say, uh, under control. You've, you've declared the Visbees as being the best buy a Corvette. Mm -hmm. um, what's the best buy a frigate? Ooh. The Iver Hulk class. Yeah, I think I think this is the thing. It's when, when you come when you're coming in for a, a small navy, um, you don't want to have too many ships because a small navy means small numbers of personnel, relatively small budget. If you've got lots of ships. Thing, more, there's more things to go wrong it's probably going to end up costing you more and to be honest you also probably don't need them because if you're a small navy why do you need six frigates mm -hmm. it's like what are you going to do with them it's not enough to actually fight anyone who matters but it's far too much to for your budget to economically sustain 
But so, looking, I think one are thing... a decent. Yeah. Frigates are a decent contribution to a multilateral force. Yes, but this is the thing: it's like if you're going to go, if you if you need frigates, then you want to contribute frigates that again meaningfully change things. If you build six small frigates, like um, with the best will in the world, the Norwegian ones, they're what five thousand ish tons. It's like they can probably look after themselves, but the ability to look after yourself is not particularly helpful in a large multinational force unless we're really, really short on, um, well, Falkland-style live bait decoys, um, which is probably not what you were envisaging when you built them. Um, So you you want to be able to put something out there, even if it's only one or two ships, where you can say, actually, I'm making a meaningful contribution to this. And also, it's relatively likely to possibly come back. (laughs) So, yeah, something like the Ivor Wheatbelts are probably the better buy because if you buy um yeah half a dozen of these norwegian f100 mini derivatives you're going to cost your fortune to run they're not actually that useful in all that in all that much out to say outside of just being there and looking after themselves whereas if you buy two or three either wheat belts they're a little bit bigger they're going to cost you less to run they're actually going to cost you less to crew um overall and if you spec them right if you then show up to an international joint mission, they're actually going to be quite welcome because they're relatively capable. And actually Leave- that leads to the one modification I would make to the San Giorgio class, because I would make them, if I was buying the overhook class, I would make, I would add Sandflex to the San Giorgio class, and mm. then that would make the things really cheap for me overall. Sorry to jump in there, but it's just, yeah, it, it was yeah. going through my head. Yeah, it's it's a case that, yeah, it's a, and, and then to say, you, you, it also is in terms of if you're a small Navy, what's your infrastructure like? You might only have docks and piers, or you can spare docks and piers in your in your major port that can only support half a dozen ships. So, unless you want to start crippling the the economic capacity of your ports, or you want to spend ruinous amounts on expanding your infrastructure, you cut, you cut your cloth to what you've got. So you maybe yeah, get two or three other wheat belt derivatives. Then maybe get if you if you need corvettes get four or five half a dozen visbies which basically you can crew with like two guys and their dog um and they're small enough you can line them up on one pier <laughs> in a nice neat row they don't take up too much space um yeah and, so, and then if you if you're really going to push the boat out something like a san giorgio as a flagship um make, makes a nice little a nice little force and again it's a case of in a lot of ways actually not only are you then in a position to make a meaningful contribution to international task forces, your ships are also big enough to help your own country in the case of a natural disaster. Um, whereas a couple of, sort of lightweight frigates, the best they can do is fly a lightweight helicopter off. That's not really that helpful. Um, and if you if you are worried about small low-level conflicts with other nearby nations... Um, if you've got a small but powerful navy, that's actually a lot more intimidating than a slightly larger navy made up of smaller vessels where your opponent might look at it and go, hmm, yes, but if we can lure this one out, we can probably take a pot shot with our one borrowed silkworm um, and, and take it out. I mean, if you, the perfect example of that is actually looking at the whole, is it Yemen that's having the whole yeah. low-level civil war thing? 
and one of the, I think it was one of the Saudi ships just happily yes. cruising offshore, going, oh, yes, well, they don't have a navy. It's absolutely more, fine. More than one, I think, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and the rebels just like, yes, we, we managed to beg, borrow, or steal this 1950s era <laughs> service to surface missile. And then it turns out, yeah, having something that's small and not really able to defend itself very well is probably a bad idea. So, for a mid sized navy, then, what's the best by a destroyer? Oh. Um, hmm. No, I can't recommend a Zumwalt class. It would just be terrible. <laughs> That's, yeah, I, I'd, love to, uh, I, I'd love to recommend the Mission the Great, but uh, I don't. John the Great. I don't think that. I think that's just too massive for most nation, nations to buy for the destroyers. It's just too expensive, too big. Mm. Um, I'd say that Sejong the Great probably plays into the, the idea you probably heard. Well, we've talked about this before. I think even for the Royal Navy, you should have a big cruiser or two as flagship type units. Yes. For a medium-sized navy, I'd probably say buy one or two of them as your flagship, as your centerpiece. But that would be the entire navy they could afford. Yes, that's the thing. <laughs> Well, so, uh, we're talking medium-sized navy. We're talking something Australia, Germany, Italy size. They can probably afford one. Buying anything like that. No, no but, then, but then again, maybe that maybe yeah, the they, they well, they've got the, unfortunately the Australians have got the Hobart class, and let's be honest, mm. the best. The, 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 whilst they are perfectly the capable ships, they are as ugly as anything. And if I was <laughs> buying them for the flagships of my navy, I would probably be crying. Which is why the Australians then went and bought the Canberra class. Which are uh, even uglier. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. The brick that floats. <laughs> you know, it's going to be the only navy the in the world where the, 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 the flagship is actually one of the, is technically the third class down, because it's going to be one of the Type 26s. So let's be honest, <laughs> the Hunter class are going to be, yes, the Hunter class are the ships which actually look good. So you're the flagships now. Okay. But, but do, you look pretty. Do those Spanish derivatives, are they a worthwhile ship? And likewise, um, you know, what, what is there actually much in the in the arena um, of destroyer, air defence destroyers that isn't built by the United States, that isn't the D class of mm. great? Uh, well, to be honest, I think if you, yeah, I mean, if it, you've got the Horizons, which are kind of Type 45-ish, they look very similar. And they've got somewhat similar systems. To be perfectly honest, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a perfect air defence ship out there at the minute for a medium-sized navy because I think a lot that you've you've got in the five, six, low seven thousand ton range, it's probably actually too small for modern air defence. And a lot of ships like the F one hundred derivatives, both ways from the original F one hundred, are really they're just a fraction too small in my opinion. And then you've got the big hitters like the Burks and the Sejong the Greats and so forth, which are, as you say, they, they might be nice to have as a one as a flagship or, or something like that. But you're not going to equip your entire navy with them. I think if you're going to if you're going to go for anything, I think you probably this is this is where I would take derivatives thereof. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I would probably, I would either look at maybe the, the Maya, the latest Japanese air defense ship, because that's, that's kind of a, a, a it's a, it's bigger than the F-100 yes, derivative. It's, it's, it's got, a, yeah, it's got a lot more firepower, but it's not, it's not a Sejong the Great. 
so you could probably actually afford more than one um yes or or again when you're going with derivatives the um proposed type 45 derivative that upped it from 48 to 96 vls cells uh, because i think yeah, the, the Type 45s, they've got the 48 cells. Yes, Sea Viper is a very capable system, but I, I kind of would like to see them with a few more missiles. Um, well, you know, it's, that, it's not hard to build 48, when it's not hard to deploy 48 land-based anti-ship missiles. No. It's, yeah, and I mean, there's, there's the space in the Type 45s if they want to modernise them. So, yeah, I, w I would say, yeah, you probably either want something like a Maya or... Type 45-2, if I mean they're the D class, maybe call it an E class, with, with the additional VLS pack in. Something along those lines would be what I would take as as a medium-sized Navy's anti-air warfare vessel. Yeah, the Type 45s are a classic wasted opportunity because you've got the space to do extra VLS. You also had an option originally considered, which was they were going to be kind of like what we've done with the Type um Type 31s, in that they were going to have a uh, 57mm mounted on them, as well as the uh, mounted, I think they were planning on putting 57mm over the hangar towards the end. So they were going to mm. have that sort of, they were going to have the the phalanxes, a 57mm, and the 4.5 inch, or maybe eventually a 5 inch gun, as their sort of defences. And that you know, with the Mark 41 VLS or Mark 53 VLS put in as the extra packs to give them strike themselves, then you would have a really, really capable vessel. But, you know, yeah. these things are made. But not with, which means you go to war without. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, as I, I think I think ultimately when it comes to air defence frigates for medium-sized navies, it, it's going to have to be either a Maya or a derivative of some existing ship. Um, I don't think that I don't think anyone's got it quite right on the medium-sized navy scale just yet. No. LHDs. Something... Let's face it, everyone's buying them. Uh, yeah. Australia, Spain, Italy, France, China, Russia. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I'm thinking, you know, um, even the um, Southeast Asian nations are, are, are looking at them if they haven't already bought some. So mm. the only nation which isn't looking at them at the moment is Britain, which is because it's being stupid. Yeah, I think I think I think with the LHGs, I think it's going to depend on what are you planning to use them for? Because I think one of the reasons that everyone's buying them at the minute is LHGs, LPDs, whatever you whatever particular variant of L, L something D they're calling them are actually very useful multi-purpose large vessels. Yes. They're, they're not, no, every, everyone's not buying them because they're all planning massive amphibious uh, invasions. Are, 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 are they really warships? Should they really be classified as auxiliaries? I mean, it's, to me, that's what they are. They are, there's nothing about them that's, that shouts front line to me. It's always, mm. um, it's always a support ship in in everything that it does in, in each each level of its capacity, and, and that's not to say that that capacity isn't voluminous, but it's just not mm. front line. And I, I think I think the yeah, it's like what what are you using them for, and what what sort of deriving from that, what are your intended long term purposes for them? Because I think you you basically got got to divide it into two two types you've got stuff like actually albion and bulwark 
which are primarily amphibious assault ships. They have a helicopter deck on the back, but they have a big superstructure. They have more carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and then you've got stuff like the the Canberras, the um, like Ocean used to be, um, etc., where they are full length flight decks. So they for for a given displacement, they don't necessarily have the same carrying capacity for troops, tanks, vehicles, etc. But they have more aerial um, operational capability deployment. Is, yes, yeah. deployment. So you're you may be maybe not buying them as carriers, you may not be able to operate fixed wing aircraft off of them, but you do have a lot more of an aerial component to them. So I'd say um, to be honest to be honest, these days, if you're a medium-sized Navy and you're not realistically looking at having to invade somebody else, uh, which, to be honest, you're probably not going to, you probably want to go with something that's more like an LHD with a, with a full-length flight deck. Because as I we can were... see them being a lot more flexible. Um, yeah. Because that flight deck you can mm. use for drones, you can use for you know, drones of all kinds, mm. whether, it's a, whether it's a helicopter drone, whether it's a fixed-wing drone, uh, whether it's a submersible drone. Yeah, it's that they've got that that inherent flexibility built into them, which is again why I think they're more an auxiliary, because there's nothing that's okay. So you build a well deck, um, but you're not stuck with that one weapon system in the well deck that mm. you can put yeah. in there whatever fits. Yeah, um, you're not stuck with um, you know standard missile launcher Mark Two A or whatever. It's you're not stuck with Sea Sparrow. You're not stuck with, you know. Um, it's a very Tomahawk. flexible asset. Yes, mm. but but it's it's flexible in that supporting role. It's not. It's so you, you, look, I, I would imagine an LHD would be with its full flight deck would be more useful than an LPD with its helicopter yeah. pad up the back. Yeah, because so, I think with the with the LHD you've got the, you've got with the world deck you've got the capability of landing vehicles of some sort if you need to um but with the full flight deck you've got that large helicopter carrying capability and then you in peacetime you can do disaster relief in but and then if you're looking at the more wartime militaristic uses of things you can use it as a a large-scale anti-submarine warfare platform lots of helicopters you can use it as again well semi-peace semi-wartime you can load it up with slightly more militaristic helicopters um, than Chinooks to go out and do like anti-piracy, excellent anti-piracy base. You can cover vast amounts of areas if you're operating a dozen helicopters. Um, or in wartime, you can slot it into a major force. You've got a self-contained exactly. asset which you are deploying with that force, and suddenly you're very useful because it's not just it's you. Maybe your one, it's your allies one, a couple of allies ones, and it might be building into an American task force. And suddenly you're talking about a divisional size forces appeared and everyone has their own discrete units yeah. as part of it you have and, a multinational brigade and all these things like that and it can and it can even act as a as a form of of supply dash replenishment ship for the rest of your vessels i mean okay so maybe you could even i suppose even fit it up for refueling at sea although that might that might be a step too far um but you could definitely keep uh use it as a, effectively a big stores ship um, for long-term deployment, stick mm. your various supplies on board, and then with your varying flavors of helicopter, you can ferry those over to the rest of the ships that are accompanying you, 
and even things like ammunition reloads if you absolutely need to. So, yeah, an, an LHD of some description probably in the, the mid-20,000 ton range, mid to high 20,000 tons, is probably the, the best buy at that point. You just have to be clear with what you... I mean, th we've discussed a lot of uses, but you have to be clear these are the things we're going to use it for. Yes. Um, yes. When you're spec, and, yeah, and not like they did the camera class. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, if they, they are if, now tempted to tamper with, but you know, yeah. So this is the thing. Console. This is why you have to be specific in the first place. Because once you start tampering with things, you normally start ruining them. Yeah. Well, then I don't think they're planning on actually tampering with it now. Um, mm. they, looked, they looked at the cost, plus they looked at the prospect of having to buy the uh, VTOL F35 and decided that just didn't add up. Um, but, okay, so Dr. Clark's favourite subject, what not to buy. Oh, mm -hmm. yes. This is, of course, the Elbonia. Can, can, I, can I start? Can I start? Yeah. yeah. No yeah. Zumwalts. <laughs> no littoral combat ships. I will accept the no littoral combat ships. And, um, well, no Ford class. Well, the, the, the thing is, it's, it's not what to buy. It's what would you buy if you were trying to equip a navy which you were Badly. actually secretly a traitor for. Yeah. So then right. you would buy the literal <laughs> combat ship. Um, yeah. The is actually is almost too capable because it, it, if, you're, no, if, you're, no, if, you're, if you're buying it based on the railgun, that's silly and you can't do that because the railgun's not viable. But if you were a, a small nation buying it based as you wanted a huge amount of VLS, so basically... Sejong the Great sort of size, almost VLS, and you wanted some big long-range guns, and you wanted it to be stealthy because of I, some I, I saw on the Twitter, I, I saw on the, the Twitter today, someone did a um, Zumwalt version with uh, triple turrets up the front, and uh, <laughs> wasn't that the uh, Royal Navy uh, ship which they which had just been uh, put around? I'm sure uh, I just retweeted it. Was, it was that. a bit of a joke. It was, it was, it was, it, it was. Um, yeah, I, I could, I could see that ship actually going into production. It might actually be useful. Yeah, I can share that with you too on Twitter. I have got it. Okay, so it is um, I guess um, I guess the ship that you probably wouldn't want to buy would be that that's a very overweight um, German thing that's just uh, recently in service. Yes, yes. The, the the we went under a bridge and lost all of our upper works design, <laughs> but we put wings on it. <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah. Oh, he's actually the guy who produced that this, that ship we're just talking about. It, he's called the Brit ninety six, right? He's produced a full task group of where the battleship would fit with Queen Elizabeth class carrier, supply ships, the submarines, the, all the things, and how it would fit in with the task group and what it'd be used for. So he's really thought about it quite in depth. <laughs> I think if, if I if I was aiming to deliberately sabotage somebody's navy. Um, the first thing I would do is encourage them to buy yeah, something along the lines of a littoral combat ship, something in the sort of three to four thousand ton range that promises to do everything all the small ships should be doing, um, because it's never going to work. It's going to break horribly. And even if by some magical pact with the dark gods, you actually get it into a halfway working state, you ended up with a slightly oversized target that can't really defend itself and is made of papier mache. Um, the next thing would be to go either really high or low with air defence ships. Um, so e either persuade them that for cost-saving reasons, you should buy a, a five to 6,000 tonne air defence frigate because 
then you're going to end, as, I, as I've said earlier, you're going to end up with something that can defend itself, maybe. And that's about it, which doesn't actually really help. Um, and it's just going to be a massive cost investment. Um, what else would it do? Oh, yeah. Get the French to buy a modified French submarine. Oh, yes. <laughs> you have to do that. You have to buy a modified so, French submarine. That, that, it's just the thing you always need. Yeah. You just, you, you, well, you've just scrapped two thirds of the Australian Navy uh, with the um, the Hobart class air defence destroyer and yeah. um, our modified French mm. submarine. Oh, the, <laughs> well, the, the, the nicest way you have got Japan just to your north, cranking out very good diesel yes. submarines. Why go to France, who even their no, nuclear they were, submarines we worry about? They were, they yeah. were very. There was you know, and, and the. And the yeah, submarines were looked at very closely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, why did we go for it? I can't. I can't answer that. Uh, I think it was simply a matter of. Ultimately, I think it was just simply a matter of Australia was afraid to be Japan's first international customer for yeah. naval vessels. Um, the thing is, it's like if you if you if you're going to list off the people who will sell you conventional powered submarines that you'd actually want to buy from, it's like I don't think France would even be in my top ten. I mean. It's, I, the, the Swedes do the Gotlands. They're not half bad. The Jap, the, they say the Japanese do a decent line in subs. The the South Koreans actually surprisingly not too 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 bad either. The uh, Italians the, are fairly decent. Yeah, the Germans the, the, actually. The, 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 the one the one good aspect of the German Navy is their U boats. Shockingly, the Russians, <laughs> I buy from them before I buy, bought from the yeah, French. Yeah, I mean the, the, the modernized <laughs> class might not be a, an absolute frontline unit, but at least you'll have them for like two packets of peanuts and a half a dollar. <laughs> Look, <laughs> the, the, the problem though the is Chinese. Those, you could probably buy from those, Chinese some quite one, good ones. None of them, none of them suit Australia. Uh, no. Yeah. It's, we're just well, too far away from everywhere, and our coastline is too big. So mm. we need a very long-range submarine. So mm. you need Japanese in that words. Yeah. Well, that, those submarines were not quite as optimised to blue water, really, because they, you know, they are looking more for the East China Sea and the mm. uh, Sea of Japan. Um, you know, we'll, yeah, the argument in Australia is always, oh, we should go nuclear. Um, but, of course, we've got no nuclear industry. So we've got no nuclear skills, no nuclear engineers. We'd have to import them all from, you know, foreign, yeah. from well, you, right. from, from India, from the United States. You know, we would need that from France. We would take, we have to take them from everywhere. We wouldn't have any Australians. We would have to start from scratch. And we'd have to, we'd have to establish our own nuclear industry in order to you know, maintain a and train a decent... I suddenly uh, see another reason for that combined design bureau we've been talking about yeah. before. Yeah, it's just so, to be... In my head, I'm just going, yeah, if, if, really you, we if, 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 if only we'd um, taken... If, if, if only we'd had enough confidence in ourselves after we went and, and got the um, Collins class board, mm. which you know, had plenty of teething troubles, but then again, what submarine class doesn't, mm. um, is now reasonably effective. And, you know, we could... Quite you could have built your own. Built our own, um, designed and built our own with a, you know with a bit of help, without any doubt. Yeah. We could we could have done that, and it probably would have ended up cheaper than these French things, and we might actually even get them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you might uh, still yeah. end up having to do that. You realise? Yeah. I mean, when I, to be honest, when when I saw all the, the the news articles about it, I was going, okay, okay. So you want an ocean-going submarine? But if you're going to convert an existing nuclear-powered submarine to 
a um, conventional powered one. Why, oh why, on of all the submarines on the planet, would you choose the Barracudas? They're, they're tiny compared to every... I mean, they're not tiny compared to a kilo, but to be honest, my model of the Queen Elizabeth isn't tiny compared to a kilo. But, but again, <laughs> this is this is the um, contradiction that Australia has to face because while we are you know, huge continental shelves around two-thirds, if not three-quarters mm. of the nation, we've got very shallow waters around the top end. Yeah. So yeah, we could go with a nice big boomer-sized mm. <laughs> uh, vessel and... It would help us in all of the areas that we don't need it. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, we just don't have the capacity. You know, we don't have any sort of facilities up north to defend and to maintain a, a large submarine of small, a, a large fleet of small submarines. Yeah. Plus, we would also want submarines that can operate in the depths of the Indian Ocean and in the depths of the Pacific Ocean. So we we sort of, I imagine, we're just trapped in a situation where we want. Something that can, that can do everything, which of yeah. course is possible, which is impossible. Which, which yeah, which I suppose this, this this is the if you want to sabotage a navy, this is the thing you try and persuade them to buy a class of ship that can do everything because it almost never works. Um, I mean, the, the, it, to a lot, to a certain degree, to be perfectly honest, what you've described is is actually kind of the same conundrum the Royal Navy faced in in World War Two when it's having to think about operating in relatively close shallow waters like the North Sea and the Mediterranean, but also operating in open expanses like the North Atlantic and the Pacific. And the solution there was to build the T-class for the out ocean-going fleet stuff. Mm. And then things like the uh, the U-class and the well, and the S-class and stuff, although some of them were, and the P-class, although some of them were supposed to be training subs, but building these much smaller subs for the, for the smaller work. But I suppose this is this is the problem with the medium navy, isn't it? You you can you might be able to get funding for one class if you can promise it will do everything. You're very very unlikely to get funding for two different classes um, mm. when you might only have two or three of each. Uh, but the, but it's a, as I say it's a good well, way yeah, of they're, they're talking they want to, yeah, they're talking they want to build a dozen of them, which is you know, not a mm. small number. But, um, but yeah, at that but, at that point you could actually legitimately probably have made a case to build two classes of six. One yes. one small and one large, but there you go. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose actually that kind of leads on to the other thing. If you really, really want to sabotage a small to medium-sized navy, navy persuade them to try and get invest in nuclear power. But the uh, uh, Russian, um, yeah. the, what the Russian nuclear power destroyer, the design that's been going around. Yeah, <laughs> or, or, or the or the Kunets of um, we can we are nuclear powered, but we to conduct air operations, we need our secondary diesel plant to be running at full capacity as well. Um, or the yeah, or, or even to be honest, the Charles de Gaulle with their um, we will stick a couple of subgrade reactors in an, in a carrier and then suddenly find out we're massively short of power. Um, the 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 nuclear power is you you you've got to have the infrastructure for it, but you and you've also got to have the money to build the hulls that can support and justify the expense. That they, they you can't halfway house. Nuclear-powered. There is a reason why even the American Navy, the only ships which are nuclear-powered, are their submarines and their huge carriers. Yeah, they 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 wanted their nuclear-powered cruisers, but they they didn't they didn't really last. Although I mean, strange enough, with their current leadership, actually, if they were saying they wanted to build a nuclear-powered cruiser, they'd probably get the money for it. True, but because it would be bigger and better. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I suppose that's and the other... going to win. That's the other problem, isn't it? It's like if a, a carrier or a uh, maybe a submarine to a lesser extent, but definitely a big carrier. You you kind of hope it'll come back in some way, shape, or form. Um, whereas the unspoken acknowledgement of any destroyer or frigate design is that some of them probably won't come back in a serious war. And whilst there is always a lot of uh, uh, hand waving, um, some of it which is legitimate over the environmental concerns of what happens if a ship goes down with um, a couple of thousand tons of bunker fuel on board. That's nothing compared to what happens if you send a ship to the bottom with a cracked reactor on board. <laughs> and there, there, there's a good reason why people have kind of quietly abandoned the idea of the nuclear-powered destroyer or frigate. <laughs> and with that, we're I'm well sure and truly over time. We are. Well I, I'm not sure how yeah. far we're over time, but we are well and truly. <laughs> we're, just, we're just about to hit the 1 minute 30 mark pre-edit. Um, well, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pre-edit. Uh, you know, it, it might trick down a bit. Um, now, it, it's always a lot of fun with you guys, and I have to say, I, I will say now we have created our first first pop culture has come from bilge pumps, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if you two have realised this, but there is now a new game sweeping the world. It's called Rock Paper Exocet. <laughs> I'm going with rock. You can bog down rocks in paperwork, no problems. There's <laughs> <laughs> oh. it's thousands of years of bureaucracy in, in, uh, in existence for exactly that reason. But the accelerate, uh, the exocet incinerates paper. Apparently, it's not my rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's it's just, it, it, it's a it, it's just a fun thing that's happened. And we have been we have to say episode nine with Michael Clapp was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We have heard the, the the love of people coming back. We've also had Michael sending us all sorts of emails of people we might want introducing us to people who we might want to chat to. So we are probably going to next month do another special with another one. We'll work going to work out what it is. Oh, yeah, Drac well, yeah. is currently having a fan, an idea because Drac's idea of a dream one is Michael Clapp and Sharky Ward to discuss naval aviation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've, I've also just thought of a brilliant idea. I'm not sure whether it's I'm not technically sure whether it's a marketing opportunity for us or possibly a scam. Um, but I'm thinking What's of the <laughs> probably something along the lines of morality. No, I'll get back to that. <laughs> that is. Um, but no, I'm just, I'm just thinking about selling these little cardboard boxes with RK850 anti-exocet system. Um, and it's just, just, just a, uh, just a rock from the garden. <laughs> it works. If, if, I mean, the pet rocks sold for a while. Yes, My only yes. concern is I might end up with an order from a, from a rather suspicious navy who actually take it seriously. <laughs> well, hey, look, you know what? Those um. Those um, IUD uh, detectors, the, um, the oh, improvised, yes. that were basically just boxes with a few switches, empty box with a few switches on. You know, they, they managed to sell several million of those to the um, United States Armed Forces occupying Iraq. So, well, yeah. you know, if we stick a serial number on a rock, that mm. makes it official, surely. Yeah. yeah. Give it a serial, give it a serial number and a weapons designation. Yeah. yeah. 
And I mean, lost it ditch, lost ditch. If an exit's coming at you, might as well lob it off the railing. You might hit it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some poor poor chap with a Lee Enfield on a merchantman managed to blow up a, sh- a shallow running U-boat torpedo in World War Two by closing his eyes and praying. So <laughs> it, stranger things have happened. Yes. <sighs> Closing his eyes and praying. Oh God! All right. That, 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 we'll see. We'll start working. I'll, I'll see if I can find some time to start working on some packaging ideas for this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. RK8. <laughs> 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 all right. Catch you guys oh. next week. All right. Take Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.